I'll read 1 Peter 2, 9, and 10. But you are chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have. We've been on this journey over the past few weeks. Talking about the idea, whether, whether you've realized it or not, we've been talking about the idea of pursuing holiness in light of the great salvation that is ours. Talking about the idea of what's it like to pursue holiness and not just uh, what we're supposed to do and not do, although that's a part of it, but the actual underlying motivations in the pursuit of holiness. For most of us, uh, I think the, at least those I can think of, the thought of pursuing holiness is largely about discovering a list of do's and don'ts and making sure you, don't, you, you do the do's and you don't do the don'ts. <clears throat> Let me ask this question. Let's kind of start here. What makes it most difficult for you to pursue holiness? Now, if, if you've been around here for a while, you know on the city, on our social media platform we use, I post on Thursdays what's called Renovate Us. It's some questions ahead of the game that you can be thinking about. So hopefully, uh, if you're on the city, you spent some time thinking about this question ahead of time. What makes it most difficult for you to pursue holiness? I kind of think of a couple different categories here. For some, holiness is more of an afterthought. It's just something you think about maybe upon the spurring of somebody else. And maybe life for you is just about simply doing right things at best. About making sure you kind of stay inside the loose boundaries or the loose fencing but kind of doing whatever you want as long as you're inside of that fencing, that Christian moral fencing. In a different category, for others, you're, you're pursuing holiness. I'm going to define this in a bit, but you're fighting to make sure every word, every thought, every action is indeed holy. Fighting to make sure even every emotion is indeed the righteous fruit of holiness. Now, as I was thinking through this, and I thought about the question of what's holiness versus righteousness? Do we, do we know the difference between holiness and righteousness? We often use those terms interchangeably, but what is the difference between those two? There is a significant measure of overlap between the two words, but just so that we can have words that we're communicating with here, I thought it would be helpful for us to define these two. If we think just strictly about God in, in relation to holiness and righteousness, think about it this way. Holiness is God's being set apart in His utter beauty, infinite value, and moral perfection. So it's God's, this is the key phrase you need to think about here, is his set-apartness. The fact that he is separate from, he is distinct from. 
in these ways. His beauty, His glory, His infinite value, His moral perfection. Righteousness, in thinking in reference to God, is His right moral actions. His right moral doings. The rightness of those things. Those, those are right. They're always righteous. So you can see where these two things start to overlap. But righteousness doesn't include this idea of being set apart. Now those actions then, uh, in a sense, are set apart. Because they're coming from a set apart person. But the idea of when we say we are righteous, we're not including, we, it doesn't include the idea of being set apart. Uh, think more in terms of actions, doings, thinkings. Are our thoughts righteous? Again, when we think about holiness, holiness is more than simply doing right things. And I think that's what's important for us as we think about the idea of pursuing holiness. It's more than simply doing right things. I think that's why many of us could struggle with the idea of holiness because many of us were coddled in legalism, which produces nothing more than self-righteousness, which is simply what? Right actions. The outside of the bowl, if you will. Now, true righteousness, yes, is, is going to include righteous thoughts, righteous motivations, and so on and so forth. But if we were brought up in a legalism that can produce nothing more, listen, anything apart from the gospel produces nothing more than a pursuit of self-righteousness, then no wonder we have a hard time thinking about holiness. Holiness is distinct from righteousness. It is set apart. That word is different. To be holy is to be utterly distinct morally from that which is not holy. To be completely set apart. The totality of your existence set apart from that which is unholy. That which is not like God in its beauty and infinite value and moral perfection. Now if you can kind of come back with me to kind of thinking about these two categories of people, some where holiness is an afterthought, the others who are genuinely pursuing holiness, and maybe you fit somewhere in between. For both of us, back to the same question, what makes it difficult to pursue holiness? Where do you keep getting hung up? What keeps you from pursuing holiness? What keeps you from flourishing in the pursuit of holiness? And here's, here's the distinction I made if you read Renovate Us. It was not what hinders you from overcoming a particular sin, but what is actual an actual impedance to the entire endeavor of pursuing holiness. And I think what you'll find in that case, if you can figure out what that is, that simply filters down then into, or if you will, fruits up into, the various overcomings of sins and specifics that we struggle with. 
So what threatens the pursuit? What hinders it? I think the Bible addresses this hindrance to our pursuing Christ's likeness and holiness over and over and over again. And Peter addresses this over and over and over again. You see, the biggest hindrance, or at least one of the biggest hindrances to our flourishing in our pursuit of holiness and Christ-likeness is forgetting who we are. It's an identity issue. Now listen, I, I know we talk about identity as a church a lot. A lot. It's a part of our core as we think about uh, you know, what are our five main identities we talk about these in house gatherings all the time we talk about these in dna i mean we, this is all over the place. we talk about identity all the time the things we're going to talk about in many ways are not new i, I really f- feel that way every time i get up i mean I, th- I think exposition in many ways we don't talk about much that's new we just talk about the same grand story just in different ways the idea of the cornerstone from a couple weeks. That concept, like the, the root concept of who we, it's another way of saying, am I an identity in Christ? Are we building upon a cornerstone that is Jesus? Or are we finding our identity in Christ? It's just different language getting at the same concept. But here's the problem. I imagine that many of you could list these things. If I were to say, based on this passage, as I did in Renovate Us, what is our identity based upon this passage, you could list these things, and you probably could have listed these things prior to even reading them if you've been in church for any length of time. But here's the problem. Do you actually live out of this truth? Does this identity actually change the way you live? An often experience I have in pastoring, and it's true in my own life as well, is not, it's not all of us, but many of us don't think deeply enough about what we say and what we do. And we don't think, where is this coming from? You say, of course I believe I'm a child of God. Of course I believe, as this passage says, I'm a a chosen race, a royal priesthood, so on and so forth. Okay then, but why then do you have to make everyone know how busy you are? Or why do you need to justify your sinful actions right now? Why do you have to be defensive? Or, or, or why can't someone challenge your flaky ego? Why is it so sensitive? I mean, right? You, you know who you are in Jesus, right? That's what you just said. Well, well, then how can when someone just even barely pricks your skin, it's like they just cut your jugular, and it's just all over the place. Why? That was a little morbid. That wasn't in my notes. Or why, why do you live like a functional orphan? Not inviting the grace of the body and elders and such into your life. Right? I mean, I mean, I mean you know your identity, right? You can list these things off. But why does it play out this way? <clears throat> Many of us grew up in a 
church culture where this idea of I'm a Christian, finally, therefore I must live this way. And so what happens is the, on the exterior, we learn to live vibrant Christian lives, or so they appear, while on the interior, we are still dead and empty. Instead of a culture where my entire being has been changed, I am set apart. Therefore, I want to live this way. You and I forget who we are. As uh, Paul Tripp would say, we have identity amnesia. We forget who we are. Now, now, contrary to pop psychology, you and I don't wander around without a sense of identity. Oh, I'm just struggling to find who I am. No, our identity is always attached to something. It's always attached. The issue is what's it attached to? It might be multiple things. It might be fleeting things. It might float from one thing to the next thing to the next thing. But it's always attached to something. No one is ever without identity and finding it in something education could be your identity the pursuit of identity could be your identity for you control idols being a good thinker can be your identity social issues can become your identity parenting can become your identity age can be your identity old and young The oppression of your experience can be your identity. The afflictions of another could be your identity. And what Peter understands here is that when, particularly in suffering and trials and struggle and difficulty, our eyes begin to focus in on self and most often leads to forgetting our true identity. And so Peter sets out to remind us of who we are are again go go back to the garden adam and eve you've completely forgot who you are you're god's children you're people who get to walk with him he has chosen you above all of creation to bear his image He has chosen you to expand His glory across the earth. He has chosen you to walk with in the cool of the night. He has chosen you to care for and to love and to cherish. He has chosen you to be His priesthood. His holy nation. What are you thinking? They forgot. So Peter wants us to see that we are a chosen people. And then he gives us aspects of what this chosen people looks like, of of, of different realities of this chosen people in just these couple verses. The first thing he says is that you are a chosen race. (coughs) You are a chosen race. Let's talk about this for a bit. We'll talk about each one of these briefly. Race is one of the most fundamental forms of identity. One of the most fundamental forms of identity. Listen, your race, your ethnicity, the cultural norms attached to that, you view life through these lenses. 
Like, understand, race is so fundamental to our experience that there's no way to experience life apart from your race. That's why it's so hard in general for us to relate to people in their experience in other races because we're so ingrained in our racial experience. It is that fundamental. We cannot view life apart from it. Peter is saying to here's what's so incredible. He is saying that your new identity is so fundamental to your existence, it's so basic to your experience that you can't escape it. That you must think through this filter. The more you understand the new race you're a part of, the more you'll interpret life through that lens. It's Peter's point. God has chosen you to be something new at the most fundamental level of your existence. You've been chosen to a new race. And you just thought it was a cute cliche that Peter was using. Now here's, here's the beauty. Here's the beauty. The gospel doesn't erase the aspects of our ethnicity and race that are good expressions of God's creativity. It does condemn, the gospel does condemn and transform the sins that come out of our racial and ethnic and cultural issues. Things like oppressive acts and sexual immoralities and things like that that come and are birthed in these cultural experiences. But things like the color of our skin, the kind of music we sing, the clothes we wear, even the way we view life, if we're not talking about through the gospel, but, but the way we uh, come at a situation, if, as long as it's not a, a moral lens we're talking about here, that experience of which we're understanding life is a, is a beautiful a potentially beautiful thing. Or the way we learn. Different cultures, different races, different people learn differently. These are all good things that the gospel doesn't erase when it moves us into one race. But it does erase, it does eradicate the sinful things. That's a key distinction, the moral issues. But the things that are not, the, thing, the differences that we can embrace are good expressions of God's creativity and the gospel and God is even glorified in those things. But here's what Paul is saying is that, or sorry, not Paul, but Peter, the gospel gives us a united heart. A unite at, at this fundamental level, something that unites us. And he gives us this, as a part of this race, this heart that treasures Jesus above all else. A heart that is now alive to God. Again, 
when we're thinking about being set apart, you, you get the picture now. I mean, you're pursuing holiness. Get the picture. You're a part of a race that's completely distinct from the other races of the world. But this race is a race that embraces the goodness of God's creativity while eradicating the sinfulness of man's heart, all united by a heart that now treasures God above all else. Now, don't don't overlook the word chosen here, certainly. We are chosen not of any merit on our side, but because of God's own desire and affections, He chose a people to be His. He chose a people to be His new race. One that is represented from people from every tribe and every tongue. One that is united by new hearts that find their refuge in Christ and nothing else. So he says you're a chosen race. The second thing he says is that you are a royal priesthood. A royal priesthood. A royal priesthood speaks of two things. Think about the royalty and about the priestliness here. The royalty is is the idea of in service to the king. In service to the king. It's not just a priesthood that has a kingly aspect to it. It's, It's a priesthood that's in service to the king. Priestliness is the idea of access to the presence of God, to to sacrifice, to mediate, to lay down your life in priestly efforts. So do you understand that? A couple things here. To serve the king was a great honor. And not just anyone is given equal rights to serve in the king's courts. But second, to have access to God is not something even the government could grant you access to. Only someone washed clean through God's ordained means could enter the presence of God. So both the idea of being in service to the king, you had to be chosen for that. And then to be in service as a priest, you must go through God's means of of cleaning and ritual cleanliness in order to be this person. But now Peter is saying this, we have been chosen for service to the king and given access to God's presence. We've been chosen for service to the king and given access to God's presence. Again, when we're thinking about now living in light of this, why why do we chase after service to anything else? Why do I need affirmation from this other person here? I have been chosen for service to the king. Why, Why do I need to have influence over this part of my life when I'm in service to the king who has influence over all of it. Why? Why? We forget that we've been chosen to be a royal priesthood. We have access to God's glory, access to His fatherhood, access to His mercy. Now the idea of priestliness, we are servants of His mission and called to a life of sacrifice. That was the priests. Their life duty was given to priestly activities, to lay their life down for the mediatorial work on behalf of the Israelites and God. 
So listen, if this is your identity, a royal priesthood, this means we will willingly and joyfully give up our resources for him, sacrificially in our home, in our friendships, in your career, in your reputation, in your marriage, in your retirement. Why? Because if your identity, because this is your identity, and if you understand it, then you know that God's future grace is enough because he's the king and his son is the high priest. His royalty will supply all your needs physically, and his presence will supply certainly all of our needs spiritually. So we can, as priests, sacrificially lay our lives down. You can sacrifice, I put it this way, you can sacrifice then all you want because tomorrow it will be as if the storehouse wasn't touched. Most of us function like this, though. As long as I stay within these Christian boundaries, give a little money to the church, don't drink too much, no cussing, R-rated movies, and listen to K-Love, then I'm good to do whatever else I want as long as I'm in that. That's not holiness. Being set apart is the whole thing. But if you're a priest, a priest, again, is in submission to the king. And if that's true, then it is all his. You see, if we, again, if we go back to this, if I just stay along inside of this Christian boundaries, then the mindset becomes, I can do whatever I want inside here. And then every once in a while, God will call me to sacrifice and to step outside of these comfortable boundary lines, and now we're getting into sacrificial living. And I think that's where many of us are at. We live inside this. I can kind of do whatever I want because these are righteous deeds. And then every once in a while, God's going to call me to sacrifice. So now I'm outside the box. The whole box is His. The whole thing is to be set apart and a living sacrifice, to use Paul's words from Romans. Next, Paul, or Peter, my goodness. Peter says, you are a holy nation. A holy nation. Right, so you, you know the things that normally divide humanity? You know the things that normally divide humanity? Things like race, gender, language, ethnicity, culture, social class, Fox News and CNN, urban, suburban, Skinny jeans, boot cut and saggy pants, essential oils, juicing in the FDA. We're no longer divided by these things. The idea of nation, the idea of nation is that we are united by something that makes us all the same. We're united by something that makes us all the same. Again, this doesn't mean that we all speak English and wear clothes from certain stores. It means, it, it, it even means that we can disagree on certain things. Even politics. Certain measures of politics. 
No matter what, listen to me, no matter what language you speak, what your ethnicity is, your race, if you are in Christ and I am in Christ, then you and I at a more fundamental level are one. We are united. So the question then is, do you live this out, right? Do you live in light of this reality? Or do you gravitate towards, and I'll quote, comfortable cultural circles? Do we gravitate towards that? Let me ask you this question. Let's get real. What if another group of Christians, ones who loved the Lord Jesus but were a bit different than us, wanted to join us? What if they were different? Maybe they spoke a different language, maybe dressed differently than us, maybe questioned things that we aren't used to questioning. Maybe they did or said things that made us uncomfortable. Kind of as a, a, a side thought here, could you sort out, could you even sort out what were cultural differences making you uncomfortable from that which was moral issues that made you uncomfortable? Could you even sort those, separate those things out and go, all right, so this is a cultural thing that makes me uncomfortable and I need to learn how to be okay with that and to even see God's glory in that versus these things that are moral issues that we need not to embrace? Could we do that? Could you, could you joyfully embrace the cultural differences that make us uncomfortable? Could you patiently work through the moral difference that are uniquely tied to this particular cultural experience? Could you, could you separate those things out? And, and embrace and yet patiently work through the things that shouldn't be there? Listen, church, if we, in, in light of this text, if we cannot wrestle through loving a people who might be different than us, then we are denying the gospel of Jesus Christ. This Peter is saying, we are one holy nation. What's he saying? A nation who has been set apart that is distinct from the world in many ways. One of those being that the things that normally divide human race are not the things that divide the people of God. If you want some Old Testament reference, it's a reversal of the Tower of Babel, right? It's a reversal of Cain and Abel. And listen, if we can't do this, we will be ill-prepared for heaven. Listen, do you see the division in our nation right now? Right? I, I hope you're, at least to some measure, attuned to these things, or in tune to these things. What would it look like for a church to be filled with people who are more different than us, and for us to show the world what a holy nation looks like? Now, I think that's happening. I think that's happening. And to some measure, it's happening here. But it's room in all of those places for it to grow, and it to grow, and it to grow. And if we're a holy nation, we need to think, how do we live this out? Now, I, I, would, I would say, listen, we got room to work on that just with the uh, diversity that we have. 
which ain't much. But we have room to work on that. We're a holy nation. This, the next thing Peter says is that you are God's valued possession. God's valued possession. Let me quote someone. God has willingly reached out and taken you as his own and drawn you close to his heart, wrapped you in his arms of grace and said, you are mine. You are mine. You are mine. He said, you are my possession. You may never experience human success, but you are mine. You may be living in a broken body, but you are mine. You may have a difficult life, but you are mine. You may be surrounded by people who are unkind, but you are mine. And as we know from this, uh, this book and from books like Ephesians and really the rest of the scriptures is that God keeps secured his possessions. He never lets loose of his possessions. In the midst of trial, do you preach to yourself, I am a possession of God, that I am his, that he holds me when I don't feel like I can hold him or that I have a grasp on him, that he has a hold of me. We are God's possession. Listen, all of these things that Peter is telling us say this word. Holy. Set apart. Distinct from the world. Distinct from all that is not godly. Now what's really unique that we cannot miss that's implied by these words and kind of runs as a string through this entire passage is this idea here. That our identity is also fundamentally corporate and not simply individual. Our identity is fundamentally corporate and not simply individual. Again, you'll miss this if you just coat through the surface here. Individualism is like a quiet thief in the night. It flies under the radar in many ways, and for many reasons, but certainly because it's at the core of our American identity. Now sure, in some cultures it's not, but the longer you live in the general American culture, the longer you live by the lie of, I must watch out for myself. It's me and me and no other. And Peter uses words, though. Look, look at the passage. He uses words like people, not person. He uses words like nation, not individual. He uses words like race, again, not person. Faith is absolutely, positively not an individual project. But wait, that's what you see all over the place. Well, that's your faith, and I've got my faith here, and you got your faith here. And listen, there is no realm of faith that is not touched or impacted in some way or to some measure by the body of Christ. 
practically speaking, you are not capable of maintaining your faith on your own. Theologically speaking, God has made you to live this way. It's part of being set apart. But again, when we're thinking set apart, right? Many of us are thinking it's me and I'm set apart, right? It's more like there's us and we're set apart. There is none of this individual stuff. Listen, your health is connected to not simply your understanding of faith as a community project, but actually living it out. Listen, we can spend lots of time doing what looks like religiously pious activity and still not have a vibrant connection with the people around you. Did you hear me? You can go to all the Christian fellowships you want. You can do all the mission projects you want and still not have a vibrant connection with the people of God around you. And that is not New Testament Christianity. You say, ah, but I just can't do it with these people. That's probably because you just want to be with people who are just like you. Remember what we just talked about? About being united with the people who are not. That's part of the grace of the scenario. That you, you get to work out this idea of being united to people that are not like you. Now listen, you can find people who are not like you in ways that are comfortable and are like you in ways that make you feel comfortable. But being forced into situations to unite with people that make you uncomfortable is an incredible grace of God. Let me quote, Whether you live like this or not, you are intimately by grace and divine purpose connected to every redeemed person in this room. Whether they make you comfortable or not, whether they serve your purposes or not, whether they view politics the way you do or not, whether they spend money the way you do or not, dress the way you do or not, use the same lingo the way you do or not. Listen, I spent a bunch of time with some nerds yesterday, and I had no clue what they were talking about half the time. But I loved it. It was good. Listen, if you're not living as a people, then you're not living as a Christian. Period. Listen, how, why? Listen, you can't be a priesthood on your own. Right? He didn't say priest, priesthood. You can't do that on your own. You can't be a holy nation on your own. You get my point? You get Peter's point? You can't be a people for God's possession on your own. Now, the beauty of community is this, is that it's meant to remind us of who we are. As you look around, as you experience the priests around you, as you are valued and possessed by God's people. Did you hear me? How do we experience God's possession of us? One of the greatest ways we experience it is other, as others possess, we experience being possessed and cared and welcomed by the people around us. Right, side note, are you 
caring and loving the people around you as though they are God's possession. If you didn't pick up on that application. As you see people who are not like you in covenant relationship with you. Do you ever sit down in a, in, in a conversation and just think, like in the middle of your com- conversation, just think about the diversity between you and that person and ask the question, is this person more like me than they are not? Just ask that question. Or am I always in conversation with people who are just like me? Listen, as you receive mercy, mercy that you don't certainly deserve, or as you experience being a part of a people that you don't deserve to be a part of, understand, listen, none of us deserve to be a part of this church. It is a grace and a mercy to us that we are then to give to others. And these things I just listed remind us of who we are. And if you are these things, then you will serve as a reminder to the others around you of who they are. And so our identity is fundamentally corporate and not simply individual. We should move on to the rest of the passage. Verse 9, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into marvelous light. It was almost like Greg knew which passage we were going to do when he chose the songs we were about to sing. He says we are chosen to proclaim his excellencies. We are chosen to proclaim his, it was set apart To proclaim His excellencies. Here's what we don't proclaim, very quickly. A theology, an ideology, programs, a political party, etc. We proclaim His excellencies. Now certainly, theology can proclaim His excellencies, even ideas. But those are not the more fundamental thing that we proclaim. We proclaim His excellencies. And we only use these other things as they serve the purpose of proclaiming His excellencies. But let me ask you a question. How many of you talk of His excellencies like that? How many of you talk about God and His excellencies? I thought of a couple categories of people. And you might float in and out of these or maybe fit squarely into one. I don't know. Some of you talk about God like this. Oh, He's so awesome. Oh, God, he's just such a gracious God. Or, yeah, my God, yeah, he can move the mountains, right? You know that one. Oh, my God, he, he can heal. Oh, my God, yep, he saved me when I was 18. Isn't that great? Aren't the skies so beautiful? God's such a beautiful. So, some of you talk about God like this. Yeah, I believe the Bible. Yeah, church, it's something my family does. Isn't God awesome? By the way, don't you know Jesus' life, Jesus, that's kind of better. Here's the problem, I think. I, I'm just speculating here for a sec. <coughs> The problem, I think, is this. Many of you were called by a religion out of darkness into nothing more than a light of self-righteousness. You were called out of a darkness into nothing more than a light of self-righteousness. I was on my way to hell. Someone told me I was a sinner and I just needed to add Jesus to my mix of life and that I would miss this dreaded place called hell. So we just called out of, yeah, yeah, duh, you don't want to go to that darkness place, so just come over here to this supposed light place of self-righteousness. 
And so out of darkness or, or so, you think you came. <clears throat> but again, what you moved into was just simply an awareness that I need to be a good person. I just need to do right things. <clears throat> kind of, the, if you think of it this way, the light of moral superiority. Right? And, then we, and then we wonder where the, uh, the culture of condemnation com- comes from. I have to be morally better than these other people and morally better than all my evil. And so long as that is true, then I'm good to go. I'm, I'm, I'm sealed. I'm safe. And I, and I just got to sprinkle Jesus and a few magical words on top of it and we have magic potion. I mean, don't forget walking down an aisle and joining a church. Listen, listen to me. Listen to me, church. If you have been rescued from darkness into marvelous light, you have a story to tell. A very specific story to tell. If you've been called out of darkness into His marvelous light, you will proclaim His excellencies. You will know at the least a taste of them to proclaim. If you've been rescued from death and brought to life in Him, if your dead heart has been awakened to behold His glory, then to that measure of His glory that you have beheld, you have excellencies to proclaim. If you have moved from unholiness to being robed in Christ's holiness, then you will proclaim His excellencies and your story will sound a bit like this. How God providentially orchestrated all the events in your life to draw you to Himself. How God so powerfully awakened your dead heart to new life so that you would taste and see that He is good. How God tenderly made you aware of your sinfulness and your need for His mercy and forgiveness. And how God showed you hope for your sinfulness through the cross of Jesus Christ. And how God in His great love for you has shown you mercy, a great sinner. And who's the chief character in that story? It's certainly not you and I. It's him. His excellencies. So we are a chosen people. Chosen to be a people who proclaim his excellencies. All of these things are true. This chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a a people for his own possession. So that we would proclaim his excellence. Here's the point. That every action, every word, and every affection will proclaim His excellencies to the world around us. Here's the problem. We forget who we are. A chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. And I think that's where Peter's next line is so important for us. Because this we forget. Once you were not a people. But now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Did you hear those words? Once you had not received mercy, now you've received mercy. Now you are a people who have received mercy. Don't forget. That's Peter's words to us. Do what you have to do to not forget. How many times I'm in conversation with people and they're just not merciful. I want you to feel the wrath 
of my voice, the wrath of my condemnation for you. Because you're not doing what I want you to do or you didn't do what I told you to do. How many times I show the same thing to my kids? What's happening? I have forgotten that I have been the recipient of mercy from God. And so have you. Once you lived in isolation, but now you are a people. Once you had not received mercy, now you have received mercy from the one from whom it ultimately matters. Again, you have this idea here once again that to be a Christian is to fundamentally be in community with each other, but then to be as a community in community with God. Now you are a people with God. And the only way for us to be a people in community with God is by His mercy. You and I don't get there any other way. It's only for God to show us mercy. And listen, you're then living in light of mercy is directly connected to your understanding of your experience of receiving mercy. Listen, the greater you understand your need for mercy, the greater you experience the greater your experience of mercy will be. So put it this way. The person who understands they have much to be forgiven for understands to that extent how much they have been forgiven. This person understands to that measure the mercy that they have received. Just look at the mercy you show others. It will tell you how much you understand of the mercy you've received. And Peter is saying, fundamental to our identity is we are a people who have received mercy. A couple diagnostic things to think through if you're wondering how merciful of a person am I. Things like bitterness, bringing old things up, holding on to past offenses, stuff like that. Those are key indicators of someone who does not know, at least very well, the mercy of God. Other things like wanting people to feel the wrath of your condemnation for their things that they've done that's wrong. Are we a merciful people? You see, listen, it's easy to live like you believe these things in this passage on the exterior of your life, where your faith is vibrant in formal church settings, programs, scheduled things, where you look like a happy, pleasant, joyful, hardworking Christian on the outside. All while the interior is full of massive contradictions. That's easy. And when you forget who you are in Christ, it becomes easy to sin. When you forget who you are in Christ, self-sufficiency becomes easier. Individualism becomes easier. Consumerism becomes easier. Selfishness becomes easier. But when our heart grabs hold, by God's grace, the promise of who we are, all of life 
is filtered through that reality. We become set apart, and then the way we live looks righteous. All of life, the way you think, the way you feel, the way you respond, the way you plan, the way you love, the money you spend, the money you save, the time you allot for this or for that, all of it. And everything on the inside, when you understand that the entirety of our personhood is being set apart, that, that and, and, and in Peter's mind, he is thinking of this already reality. Now, there's a sense in which this is already true in the mind of God. That we are his royal priesthood, his holy nation, his possession his chosen race. And now because of this reality, we understand and believe that this is now who we are, final and sealed. That now we turn and we don't do these righteous things out of duty. We do them out of this is who we are now. We want to. As I preached last week at Refuge City Church, He's made us these things. That should spur in us above all things. Love for God. And Jesus says in John 14, if you love me, you will obey my commands. If you love me, you will live righteously. You will pursue holiness. You will pursue not just right actions, but you will pursue being set apart for God. Let me end with a few questions here. Is the bitterness you have being broken down by the mercy you've received? Is the content of your speech toward your spouse or children directed by the priest you've been made to be? Is your relationships with other believers who are not like you deeply united because you are a holy nation? During your times of heartache, does it comfort you, give you strength knowing that no matter what, you are God's possession, His safekeeping? Peter says to us, you were not a people but now you're God's people. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Oh, sinner, washed by the blood, you have received mercy. Fight to not forget that. The broken body the spilled blood of Jesus, the act of the Lord's Supper as we're about to partake in together, the idea of seeing His broken body, tasting it, drinking of His spilled blood for us, tasting it, is to do many things. But at a very fundamental level, it is to remind us that we are people who have received mercy. Let's pray.
Father, I pray as we partake in the Lord's Supper this morning, as we commune with you by remembering the broken body and spilt blood of Jesus, that this is the great display of your mercy to us. That you would send Jesus to die for us. That you would send Him to take the justice and the wrath, the condemnation due for our sin, so that we could receive nothing but mercy. For there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Father, we receive no wrath from you. We receive no punishment from you. Only the loving discipline of a father. Only the mercy and grace of a father. So God, I, I pray that as we, as we partake this morning, that we would walk as those who have received mercy. We would walk in humble faith and repentance. That we would not come to the table in sin that we are unwilling to repent for. For Paul tells us that we would be drinking condemnation upon ourselves. Or judgment, rather, upon ourselves. Father, I pray that this morning we would lay these things before your feet. We would trust that there is no wrath for us, only mercy, because of the blood of your Son, Jesus. May we believe this morning who we are now in Christ because of your great work and so live lives that look like a pursuit of holiness. Father, for your glory and our good, it's in Jesus' name, amen. Let me give you just some brief instructions real quick as we begin. You remain seated, um, the band will play, and as you pray and are ready, come forward and um, partake with us. Uh, you don't have to be a member here to, to do so, but um, I th- do, we do believe the scriptures lay out that you need to be a follower of Jesus. That you need to be walking in repentance. So if there is something that you're not repenting for right now, repent. Don't wait. If you can't, don't partake. But see the broken body, see the mercy of God, and be drawn to repentance. Be drawn to repentance. That He loved you and sent Jesus to die for you.